Good evening. You please uh, turn, if you would like to, to Romans chapter 8. And I will say up front that I do not um, intend to give a full exposition of this passage, but a desire to encourage and to motivate us to continue to study prayer and to pray. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. And I've asked uh, Tim Freitag if he would pray for the ministry of the Word. Romans 8, 26. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how we ought to pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let us pray. As we seek to expand on the idea of private prayer, of our prayers that we would bring before God our Father in the private of, as the scripture says, our, our closets, we are extending the idea here somewhat, as I say, of the Holy Spirit teaching us how to pray as we ought, how to pray as we should. And I looked last week at the matter of prayer, and even in that, the Holy Spirit needs to enlighten us, even as it says here in this passage, Paul says, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, but he also knows what our minds are, and he also knows that which we ought to pray and how we ought to pray. And so we did look at the matter of prayer, the language of worship, as uh, Benjamin Palmer calls it, the language of worship, the language of dependence, the language of guilt, and the language of communion. As we seek to adore our Heavenly Father, as we seek to praise Him for what He's done, and ask in our petitions and with a mindful gratitude of thanksgiving, even in the midst of those petitions, but also remembering that which ought to bring us humbly before him, confessing sin and seeking as the suppliant, seeking as it were on our knees before the Father. 
And then finally, that which is a great privilege. Uh, John Owen even says there is in that a something of the priesthood of the believer, interceding for one another, that giving up of ourselves in order to come before the Father for others. This evening I want to look at what I would call the, the manner of prayer. Some call the nature of prayer. And this is where Owen says, wherein the Holy Spirit works on us a due sense and valuation of them, meaning the matters of prayer, with desires after them upon the will and the affections. See, there's, there's more here than just the prayer. And I don't think I needed to say that, but here what I, I get from looking at several uh, commentaries, several theologies really, from Owen and from Benjamin Palmer, that the duty of prayer involves the entire man, the whole of man in the worship of God. He, he, not only his spirit and several things that the commentators, the theologians bring out in that, how we ought to think and how the mind works in prayer, but also the body. Also using the, the physical body, the senses that God has made us with. And so I want to look at that duty first, the duty of the whole man in the worship of God in prayer. Of those spiritual qualities, there is the mind first. It's as if the, the man or the woman who would pray must pray with understanding. We know that passage in 1 Corinthians 14, and I know he's talking there about the worship service and corporate uh, setting where he's, he's looking at someone who would, would pray in a tongue. But, but listen before you say that it doesn't apply to private prayer. He says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. He says, I shall pray with the spirit and I shall pray with the mind also. And, and to me, it, it says that, that we must pray with an understanding, that, that our mind cannot be absent from that prayer. We're, we're not talking about the, the mumbling of chants or, or some kind of mantra where, where people turn off the mind and say, we're talking about engaging with our Heavenly Father in conversation, in, in communication. The mind must be involved. And we must pray with an understanding mind that we, we, we pray to Him because we know Him. We, we, we pray as we, we know who he is. So there, there must be something there from the scriptures, from teaching, from preaching of others that helps us understand who it is that, that we approach. But we also have to consider how we approach God, that, who he is. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He, he is the one who is high and lifted up. And he's that picture, Owen says, we, we need to picture him as the one who sits on the throne. And, and not just coming to God as we will, but this is where the Spirit helps us to know how we ought to approach him. 
And I think also the understanding includes preparing our own argument, preparing what we're going to say, and thinking it through. It doesn't mean that it has to be eloquent. It doesn't mean that it has to be in a language of a certain way. It, it, but it does mean that we need to think about what we're praying to God about. But in addition to the mind, there is the conscience. And the conscience brings us under subjection to the law. It's the conscience that helps us understand what is right and what is wrong, what is blameworthy and what is worthy of approval. And so in our prayers, we, we need the conscience. We need the Holy Spirit to prick our consciences to, to know how we confess or how we ought to praise or how we ought to ask. And then what ties the mind and the conscience together is the heart. It says it's, it's a, a tie that binds the mind to the conscience. It, it gives us that affection for what is good. It gives us that disgust for what is evil. I don't know who it was that prayed in public this morning in our worship service, but someone prayed along those lines. Give us that desire for what God loves and give us that hatred for what God hates. And the heart is the one that takes the mind and understanding of those things with the conscience discerning them and causes us to have an affection and a desire for that which is pleasing to God. And what is the coordinator of all these faculties of the mind and of the heart and of the conscience? It's the will. The, the will, as we make our determinations in, with the conscience and the mind, the, the will guides us, the, or the conscience guides us, and then the will is what gives us that desire for action. Owen says, these have to go together. He says, the mind may have light to discern the things that are to be prayed for, and yet the will and the affections be dead unto them and unconcerned in them. See, we can have the right things to pray for. We can say the right words, but unless the will and the affections are quickened, made alive by the Holy Spirit, they're going to be dead, as he says, un unconcerned about them. Something to say, but not something that comes from the soul of man. Owen goes on to say, prayer is the obediential acting of the whole soul towards God. See, he doesn't just stay with the mind, the intellect. He doesn't stay with just the conscience. He doesn't stay with just the heart and the emotions, but the will coordinates those that it's the whole soul that worships God. And yet again, we are spiritual creatures, and yet we are physical creatures as well. We, we have a physical body. We, we have the five senses. I came across a quote from a man by the name of Isaac Taylor, and he says of the senses, through five open avenues, the soul goes forth and takes possession of a world foreign to itself. See, there, there's this danger, Palmer says, that, that the mind is isolated. It, you know, we, we, we think, and it's, it, it's like it's, it, it's in its own little cupboard. 
and yet it, it must be expressed. So our emotions are one thing, but our, our body is a way of expressing those things. In prayer, with reverence and awe, even all a person's qualities, all of his fa faculties, the fact that he is a physical being ought to blend. And they ought to blend in those prayers. How we speak, the gestures that we use, the posture, or even our facial expressions convey an attitude of worship. And so it is something that consumes man, that ought to be all the whole of man. As Owen says again, having truly affected the whole soul, that is, have the Holy Spirit having done that, there is in the actual discharge of this duty of prayer, wrought in the soul by the power and efficacy of his grace, such an inward laboring of the heart and spirit, such a holy supernatural desire and endeavor after a union with the thing prayed for in the enjoyment of them, as no words can utter or expressly declare. That is, fully and completely, we cannot. And yet the Holy Spirit can. And so he says that it is something that it consumes or involves the whole of man, his soul, his spirit, his body. And part of that is because of the second point, that the duty involves personal communion with a holy God. Palmer says that this duty, this personal communion with God is, quote, the soul's fellowship with him who is supreme in majesty and dominion. Prayer is the soul's fellowship. And so we don't come to him with just a part of us. We come to him with all of us. It's a delight in God as the object of our prayer. See, there are times when we, I think we can get so mechanical in our prayers that we forget that we're bringing these before God, but he is the object. He is the one to whom we are praying. And sometimes it's, I know in my own life, it's almost like I forget him. I forget that he's the one seated on the throne. He is the one who would, by his own pleasure, reach down and draw me to his throne. Not me drawing God down to my level. Again, Owen says, prayer involves having a sight of God on his throne of grace. And what do we find there? Why do we go there? Because we know that is the fount of grace and mercy, as the writer of Hebrews says. Isaiah said, looks at it this way. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, he says in chapter 30. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. See, that's the body, the soul, the heart, the will, the conscience, the mind, understanding that I go to have a personal meeting with a holy God. And this private meeting is personal. And there are times I, I think, you know, my finite mind still has a hard time 
thinking this through. Even as we pray corporately, we're praying privately, are we not? But even Christians all over the globe praying at the same time is not an issue for God. It's not a problem for God because he meets us personally. It's a, it's a personal meeting, but it's also a confiding meeting. It's a meeting in which we have that opportunity to unburden ourselves in a way that no other situation has. It's a discovering meeting. It's a place where we discover things about God. As we pray, the Holy Spirit puts in our minds things that we ought to know, things that we ought to, to see. And it is individual. It is a, something that, you know, no prescription, you know, it's not a, what should I say, one size fits all. We all ought to be doing this duty, but the way that you pray is maybe different than the way I pray. Just think about the many approaches. Some pray consistently during the day, even as they're going about their housework or their business work. I know for me to take away those distractions, I need to be walking. I need to be walking somewhere by myself with nothing to answer like the phone or, or children. And I came across this verse and I thought, oh, that's a funny place for a commentator to put that verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 13, and I always think of this verse as, as men to men, man sharpening, you know, the, the iron sharpening iron kind of verse. But it says, he who walks with wise men becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. He who walks with wise men will become wise. Is there no wiser man than our Lord that you would rather walk with? As we walk with him day by day, as we experience that, when we go into our closets and, and we take that journey, that walk with him, we become wise. The Holy Spirit gives us the wisdom. God imparts that to us. I, again, I can't expound this whole verse. I don't understand how the Spirit does that, but this is what the Apostle says. He helps us in our weaknesses because he knows the heart and he knows the mind of the Spirit and because he intercedes for the saints. And so we see that this walking aids us. And I don't know where Chuck is going to go with Hebrews 4, was it 16, where we're told to draw near the throne of grace. And many of us immediately, when he asked, you know, what is this? We thought of prayer as a means of grace. Well, I found out this week that the Westminster Confession treats it as a means of grace, but the Belgic and the London Confessions do not. <laughs> and, and yet what I see here is that we draw near for that grace and that mercy because we are so weak and because we are so needful. And Psalm 25, the psalmist says, The secret of the Lord is for them who fear him, and he will make them know his covenant. He will make them know. He will instruct them. He will teach them. He will help their eyes be opened to the truth. 
And so we have an opportunity in our closet prayer to draw from the vast well of God's attributes and his abilities. We, we draw on his fullness of the one who is the fullness of all in all. We draw on his wisdom, we draw on his strength, his holiness, but also his peace and his boldness that we may walk, that we may live, that we may do the job, the duty that he has called us to do. Thirdly, the duty of prayer involves a view into eternity. In prayer, one of the commentators say, and I'm sorry, I don't remember who it was, says this, in prayer, life is adjusted to the life to come. Our present physical earthly life is adjusted to the life to come. Because when we're lifted up before the throne of grace, when, we're, when we come to him, when we enter the closet with him, we're leaving the vanity of this world behind for that period of time. We're losing sight of that which is fading away, but he opens for us a window, a vista of the blessings to come. And this is why the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, whether the riches of his glory in the inheritance in the saints. See, he opens that window, that vista, so we see, and it gives us perspective. It, it, it gives us a perspective on eternity and time. You know, what, we, what we understand in this world, we become so locked, we become so burdened, or, or perhaps so slaved by time and, and our circumstances and earth and all of its issues. But when we go into the closet, we get a new perspective. We get a perspective from the one who is from eternity, the one who is the beginning and the end. Benjamin Palmer wrote, if the worth of any created thing is that it fulfills the purpose for which it was designed, then is it not the nobleness of the man disclosed who perceives the scope of his entire being and provides for the destiny which he must shortly overtake. In our closet prayer, we are preparing for that next step, for that sojourn, that going to eternity. We are getting a perspective on our life here that not only will help us here, but will prepare us for the next. And finally, the duty of prayer involves faith and sincerity and fervency. The writer to the Hebrews writes, he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's that foundation by which we come. We know he is the source of Strength, he is the source of the answers to our prayers, but we must come to him by faith. And James says, yeah, let him ask, but let him ask in faith without doubting, or as I've come to understand that word, without wavering, without dithering, looking with uncertainty, we look to him without any doubting. 
And that faith includes an attitude that we are promised those things for which we see and realize the glory of God first. Those things which are according to his will and those things which God has prepared for our good. Those are the things that we believe by faith and those are the things that God are asking. But we must pray in sincerity or as you probably think of this, the word that probably comes to your mind is without hypocrisy. Without the mouthing of things for which we say we pray and yet our hearts, our minds, our wills are far from that. That we are like that one that Owen says that, you know, the mind is on them, but the will and the affections, eh, they have no interest in. Psalm 145, the psalmist says, The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. And so our prayers must be sincere. The prayers must be to him because we say, I believe. And our prayers must be with an urgency, with a fervency. You know the verse in James chapter 5, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And again, that's in the context of praying for one another, of the, of the church, uh, praying for healing, praying for God to take away those diseases and things. And yet, I believe that as James moves along toward the end of that book, when he gives us the example of Elijah, he's also looking at our closet prayers as well. That literally, that passage, some call it ferv earnest fervency or a fervent effectual prayer. Literally, it says prayed with prayer, with praise with prayer. It's as if there's a doubling, as if there's an urgency there in prayer. Because in prayer, we are weighted with all of our various duties, are we not? The burdens we have, the obligations, the relationships. And who can assume these responsibilities without considering the costs of them, the dangers, the endurance that is required? Therefore, we heed the scriptures when it says, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares about you. Who would go? in this life without prayer? Who, who would go a day? Who would go a week without coming to that closet? It is true what we sang tonight. What a friend we have in Jesus. But do we know him? Do we know him in our closets? Do we walk with him? Do we give him all of our spirit, soul, mind, strength? In love, yes, but all of that is involved in prayer, the worship of God. And James, in that passage, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. He says it's the prayer of a righteous man. And I say that to say this, it's a righteous man is not holier than thou. It simply means that by virtue of receiving forgiveness through Jesus Christ, we are his. 
And therefore, when we see the examples in Scripture of prayers, Jacob wrestling with the angel, Daniel praying regularly and praying even in danger of his life, or Elijah who prayed that it might not rain and then prayed again that it might rain, praying in faith. James tells us, yeah, that was Elijah. He is a man with a nature like ours. Essentially, he says, Elijah, he's a person just like you and me. And so what we see here is when he says the effective prayer, the fervent prayer of a righteous man, that's every believer, every man and woman and child who knows Christ. Or as Douglas Moo in his commentary on James says, every believer has access to that, that kind of effectiveness in prayer. Why? Because he's an Elijah? No. It's because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches us. The Holy Spirit helps us. The Holy Spirit understands us. And he comes alongside us. And he intercedes for us. And so, every man, every woman, every child who knows Christ, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, can pray with understanding, can pray with faith, can pray with fervency and sincerity, and most of all, can pray with the delight in him who sits on his throne. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a privilege, what an opportunity, yes, and what a responsibility that we would engage our minds, our hearts, our wills, our conscience, and our body to come before you wholeheartedly, the whole of us, and not by halves. And Father, yet knowing that you have left the Holy Spirit to teach us, to help us in our weaknesses, in our misunderstandings, in our, our things, our foolishness, in our laziness. Father, teach your people, help us, grow us in this. Help us to desire that communion and fellowship with you. Not that we would be seen, not to us, as the psalmist says, not to us, but to your name be glory and honor. And the building up of the church, for Christ's sake, amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul writes, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Amen.